welcome to the show and thanks for checking us out. My guest today is Sean Dowdell. Now, Sean is doing press right now for his Grey Days album, which is a collection of songs from his band with Chester Bennington of Linkin Park. Uh, so they, what they did is they reworked the songs and they brought in special guests from bands like Korn, Bush, and Helmet. And I have to say, it does sound really great. I love this new album. And he tells me there's more songs to come. Um, so besides playing drums for Grey Days, he also owns tattoo shops called Club Tattoo. And this is one of the biggest names in the tattoo business. And their clients include everyone from Miley Cyrus to Slash. Um, so that's a big thing that he's doing, too. He also wrote a book about his life called Tattooed Millionaire. And he does public speaking events. So definitely a lot to talk about with Sean. And I really enjoyed chatting with him. We talked about some deep stuff. We talked about business, music, and he had some funny stories to tell as well. So it's great stuff. Check it out. Welcome, Sean Dowdell. Did I hope I said that right? Sure. Sean Dowdell to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. We have a lot to talk about, actually, because I, when your publicist booked this, um, she sent out the thing in gray days, and I didn't know what it was, and it took me a couple days to listen, then I listened to the songs, and I was like, oh, I really like this. And so then I was like, yeah, I'm in. I want to do this, and I want to you know, talk to this guy who made this amazing music. And then I started doing my research, and I was like, oh, you've done a lot more than just music. You've got tattoo parlors. You've got a book. You do public speaking. So there's a lot to talk about here. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to talk about anything you'd like. Okay, awesome. Well, how are you doing today, first of all? <laughs> I suppose I should start with that. I'm doing great. I'm feeling good. Ran a couple miles this morning in a good mood. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. So yeah. So if we go back to the beginning, um, I think it's kind of interesting. So your parents, you're, you're like, your dad was an accountant and your mom worked at American Express and they had a good work ethic, but they weren't big dreamers. And it was actually your grandfather that was the dreamer. So tell me about his influence in your life. So he was probably my, the first entrepreneur in my family that I'm aware of. His name is Russell. And he opened his first business just prior to World War II. He opened up a print business in uh, it went in Chicago, and then he got uh, drafted into uh, the armed services, the uh, the Coast Guard during World War II. And then when he got back, he continued his print company, and then ended up moving out to Arizona with his family. And he really, you know, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was younger, and he just really instilled at an early age that. I was capable of doing anything I put my mind to doing and not to let other people put limitations on what it was I couldn't and, and couldn't accomplish. It's really that simple. He just made it very simple for me. Like you can do whatever you choose to do. And as soon as, soon as I understood that I, I was able to, to do a lot of things early on. My parents were really hard workers. My, my dad and mom, I mean, I don't, I maybe remember them calling in sick to work maybe a total of three or four times my entire childhood. They were always uh, the, just the nine to five um, hardworking uh, blue collar workers that, you know, I wouldn't say they weren't big dreamers because I think early on in their life they did, but they had three children early on. You know, I think sure. my mom was maybe 22, 23 by the time she had the, the third one of us. And then you had the the horrible economic conditions of the seventies and the, and the Jimmy Carter, um, administration that just kind of ran the economy into the ground in, in America for, 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 for young entrepreneurs in the seventies, it was really, really difficult. So yeah. my parents, they just, I think they went the more the safe route than okay. they did the, the trying to live through their dreams because mm -hmm. so many things 
were just getting crushed at that time. I mean, uh, my mom tells me stories of the gas lines. You're probably too young. Oh, to remember this, my but, dad told me the um, same stories, how you had to line up yeah. to get gas at a gas station. Yeah. For three and four hours to yeah. fill your car with gas. I mean, I can't even imagine what that's like. Yeah. Right? My, so, yeah. My dad said my mom would have to go do it and, uh, and then give the car to my dad because he didn't have to, he had to go to work. So he's like, I don't have time yeah. to go wait. So he'd like, she dropped him off for work and then she'd go sit in the line for three or four hours and get gas. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, what a what a horrible scenario, right? So yeah. I think there was more of uh, situational circumstances sure. to why my parents chose the yeah. path they did, and they just wanted to keep the roof over the head. But it it wasn't from uh, a, a lack of energy or a work ethic for sure. No, they just had no. A different path. Yeah. So, but so going back to you and the dreams, you you fell in lo- you must have fallen in love with music at some point, and it, you started playing the drums at age seventeen. And right away, like you started get, you started playing in bands. You had uh, the Sean Dadell and friends question mark. And that was your first band. But then gray days, it was like seven or eight months later. And you guys like, you guys had like three records already. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty early to, to have success in a band. Well, you know, what was really cool is, is when I was a, a teenager at age 14, 15 and 16, I had a bunch of friends that were in bands. Okay. So we would hang out at the rehearsal studios or if they were lucky enough to get a show locally, we would go to the shows. That was rare, but, um, I was around music a lot. I just didn't play an instrument. Mm. And then finally I, I, I just basically told myself, learn the drums. My uncle was a great drummer mm. and he showed me some stuff and I just started playing. So I being around it so much for years at a time, uh, before I actually immersed myself into it, there was already kind of a roadmap there of what to follow. Okay. okay. Now we got to get a rehearsal place. Now we got to get all the band, you know, each band position locked in mm-hmm. and then we got to start writing songs or playing covers, whichever direction. And that's really how I got started. I really had a good roadmap from, from my friends back oh. in the scene before I started playing. Yeah. And so you had Chester come in, he was recommended through a mutual friend and his audition. He, he sang uh, Alive by Pearl Jam, and you said he nailed it. Yes, he did. I mean, he was 15 years old, and my friend said, this kid sounds just like Eddie Vedder. You should have him come in and try to sing. So we or I bring him down to rehearsal, and uh, he shows up, and he's this scrawny little kid. And I, and I just remember feeling like, oh, man, this guy is not going to be our lead singer. <laughs> and then, of course, he sang, ah. and you know, he blew our blew our, our, our jaws to the ground. It was like what uh, he was so good and so young that uh and i was only 17 18 at the time so um you just knew when somebody could sing they either could sing or they couldn't and he 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 could he could throw down at a young age and of course he got a lot better with practice and and once he joined the band and we we're able to start writing and doing this thing you know three four five times a week and it became something that we were obsessed with you yeah know? Yeah. And you guys had a lot of success. Like I said, the three records and then, uh, you headlined the whiskey, a go-go you open for Bush and no doubt. And you're headlining your own shows. Can can you paint a picture though, of like the music scene in Phoenix back in the nineties when you played in it? Like, I know there was the Mason jar I've heard of, and did you ever like run into the gin blossoms or any other, uh, so, so the gin blossoms were a little bit before our little, time. Yeah. They were about three, four years ahead of us. Okay. But they really did lay a great foundation for other bands. So at the time in Arizona, there was something called the Tempe scene or the Tempe sound. Yeah. We were not that. Okay. We were not right. That. Yeah. That was the gin blossoms, bands like Dead Hot Workshop. Roger um, Klein, yeah, uh, refreshments but, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. The refreshments, refreshments kind of evolved from that whole scene. And when Grey Day started getting noticed on the map, the refreshments were just getting their record deal. I think with Mercury at the time, maybe I'm wrong on that, but mm. uh, 
I remember playing a couple of showcases with those guys at a place called the Electric Ballroom. That was really the only real showcasing venue in town at the time. There was there was a place called the Roxy, but it wasn't as cool mm. as the Electric Ballroom. That was a 1500-1800 seater. And we eventually were able to start packing that place on our own. Mm. And that's what really started getting the labels to notice us. But as far as the sound in Arizona, we didn't sound like anybody else. You either had really heavy metal, basically bands trying to sound like uh, Metallica or, or oh man, Megadeth and all, all those yeah. kind of old school metal bands, which was not our gig at all. Or you had the Tempe sound. Uh, and, and although the refreshments, Roger Klein and the refreshments, those guys were part of that Tempe sound, they were really able to do something unique. And we had a lot of respect for them because they weren't just biting off what the Jim Blossoms had already done. Uh, you know, we respected the Jim Blossoms, uh, but we never, we weren't in that, we weren't in that scene, so yeah. to speak, so, create our own, our own niche. Right. So did you do a lot of covers in the beginning or was it mostly originals or mix or? No, we played a ton of covers in okay. the beginning. As a matter of fact, our first show was all cover tunes. Okay. There was another band that kind of had a breakout success called the Funk Junkies back back when we were just hitting on all cylinders, oh. and we did a couple showcases with them. They ended up getting signed to Interscope, and they did a deal for the Tommy Boy soundtrack, and we be, we ended up becoming good friends with those guys after after our music life, so to speak. But those guys were really breaking the mold as far as there was nothing out there that sounded like them. So we knew it that there was something out there for us if we just carved our own path mm -hmm. and that's really what we stayed true to long term you know yeah once we started to know what great days was what we were about we understood what our mood was we were dark we were uh emotional we were sad i mean all those things we we're an emotional band um and and we knew that that was a different path than what everyone else in phoenix was trying to do right yeah. So, and then, but you know, despite your success with that band, it wasn't paying the bills, which is, so you, th that's when you decided to open up this, uh, tattoo shop, right? You, you left, you dropped out of ASU. Were you a philosophy major? Is that what I heard? I man, you did your research. Yeah. yeah. So I was a philosophy major at ASU and I was in the second semester of my senior year and I had just opened up a uh, club tattoo with our bass player Mace at the time. And we were touring. Uh, that was, the, you know, we were starting to do stuff like the whiskey and, and stuff out of town. And, um, I was waiting tables full time and I just opened my business and I was in school full time and just something had to give. Yeah. I just couldn't do it all. And when I told my parents, I was dropping out to pursue my business, uh, my entrepreneur dream, you know, they thought I was crazy. They thought I was foolish. They still said, you know what, we support you. So I'll give them that. But and I, I think a lot of parents would, would feel that their kid was being foolish if they came and told them they were dropping out with six credits to go before they got their bachelor's degree and were going to open up a tattoo parlor in the 90s. Yeah. It didn't really make a lot of sense from my parents' <clears throat> perspective, but I just had a vision of what I wanted to do mm -hmm. and chased it. Yeah. You know? So go, so going back to when you started it, um, you started it, the, the shop with $8,000 how did you get the, the the initial money for that? Cause I'm assuming that was a down payment on a bigger loan or that was that, that wasn't the whole loan. Was it? Uh, there was no loan at all. That's everything I had to put down on the, uh, on the lease, my deposit, uh, furniture, uh, paint tile, the whole deal. Eight grand was it. Oh, that's uh, all you had grand. total. Well, how did you get the eight grand? Was that stuff. just from waiting tables and saving and stuff? It, it was, I saved money wow. for about nine months. Um, and just saved up and, and initially it was, we were supposed to be 
Mason and I were supposed to be partners and he was supposed to come up with eight grand. I was supposed to come up with eight grand and uh, I came up with my money and he didn't come up with his money. So it was just <laughs> my money that opened the business. So oh, unfortunately, okay. we didn't get to do a lot of the stuff, but we had already signed the lease and we were already oh, obligated. And, yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of fell into what it was at that point. Well, yeah. And you had a good business idea because like you said, uh, there's only eight tattoo shops in the in the whole state of Arizona. And and you hate the term tattoo parlor, by the way. You like calling it a tattoo shop. And yours guys' was the thing was gonna be kind of more upscale. It wasn't gonna be like sketchy where people were scared to go in. It was a place that girls could go in and not feel afraid. But so I'm I'm curious about like your business plan. Um, you know, we, so you had the eight thousand. Did you have like fiscal goals and tax stuff, or did you just learn all that shit yeah. as you went? I literally said, This is a cool idea, let's give it a try. That's as much business. <laughs> knowledge is like wow yeah because your degrees in philosophy so i mean you didn't that's crazy you know i earned my business acumen through uh trial and error and learning how to fail uh respectably uh but at the same time there's a lot of lessons that that i had to pick up and 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 not just not go bankrupt really was the goal the first year Mm -hmm. so um you know i i eventually became a very astute business person and and very successful entrepreneur but the first couple years were very scary you know i almost went out of business a few times yeah i failed a lot and i you know it's funny to even hear your question did did i have you know performance and projections no i I didn't even couldn't even understand what that was at the time (laughs) That's so fascinating though. But yeah, because you also, you, you were fighting the city at one point because they were going to have the light reel and you thought that would kill your business, all the construction. No one's going to be able to get to your oh, shop. So you opened up yeah, another shop and then you thought the first one was just going to die out, but then that like helped the first shop. And so they both exploded. Man, you really did your research. I like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, I'm not used to that by the way. Thank you. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, so I did. I fought the city of Tempe and they were putting a light rail. For those that you don't know what that is, it's basically an above ground train that it's a people mover mm-hmm. um, that just basically moves right. in the middle of the street. And it went right in front of our store and basically cut off the entrance to our store. And uh, basically through some good guidance from my father, who who was involved in the uh, the accounting side of the of the state budget on the on the light rail. Uh, I, I saw the writing on the wall real fast that it was going to put us out of business. And we opened up our second store eventually the, through the popularity of the, of the business of what we were doing with the branding that we had, had, had acquired by that time, we were able to make both businesses a success for another five or six years. I ended up selling that first studio mm. and it's no longer in business. The light rail really did put out that oh, business eventually, but, okay. uh, and, and the light rail ended, ended up killing over 50 businesses along that street. It's, it's a, it's a, mm. it's a death to a small business when there's, literally huge construction cranes for two or three years in front of your business. Mm-hmm. It's, there's no way to win that. Yeah. And we saw that, we saw that in the beginning, but it's really what sparked our ability to expand. My wife and I really became business partners right around that time. And she, she came into the business and we just really expanded fast and, ha- and took on a whole different understanding of, of how to become a brand and not just a one-off mom and pop shop. Right. No. And meanwhile, uh, the band around this time or before whatever you guys, it was 98. I think the band breaks up and you didn't talk to Chester for like two years, I think after the first Lincoln park record came out, came out. Um, but you, you said that you were really proud of his success, even though you guys weren't talking. And I believe that because you don't, you know, when people are, are are bitter, it's usually because they're not six, but you're because you're successful in your own right. You're, you're doing your own thing and you're successful. So 
I, you know, maybe when I was really young, I had a different philosophy and I was a little bit more prone to jealousy and stuff like that. But I just kind of moved past that. I stopped trying to limit what my success was determined on what other people were doing. That just doesn't make any sense. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of, you get trapped in this little bowl of, of petty jealousy and, and wondering why things aren't happening to you. And then you have to come to the realization that things don't happen to you. They happen for you. And whether or not you take advantage of the moment that is in front of you really dictates the, uh, the sense of how far you can take that. And it's really up to you. So that's where my mindset was. And I owned a recording studio at the time. Uh, that hybrid theory came out. I had club tattoo and a recording studio and the the record labels used to send me huge boxes of, of CDs of their, of their upcoming artists. Uh, I was what was called an influencer at the time. So they would <laughs> ask for my feedback. Okay. And uh, I remember the day I got the, the disc called hybrid theory from Warner brothers uh, and it listed the band members. And I saw Chester's name on, it. I was like, no shit. Okay. And I put it in the studio and I sat and I listened. I was like, this is really good. And I went home, I played it for my wife and she goes, what do you think? I said, I think it's fucking great. This is going to be huge. And sure enough, you know, six, eight months later, it it was changed to Lincoln park and, and it was all over the place. And he and I weren't talking, but his success wasn't just determined with my involvement. That's one of the things that I, I never understood the people that would say, are you, are you pissed off that he made it? I'm like, are you stupid? No, I feel like I was a part of that. Like I'm proud of him for that. Mm-hmm. Why would you ever want somebody you cared about to fail? Mm-hmm. That's so small minded. Uh, I would be uh, heartbroken if Chester wanted me to fail after we broke up. That's just not what we got into it for. So it then why did you guys was- break up in the first place? I don't know if I know the story behind that. Well, some of us got married early on and, uh, you know, our wives started having opinions on band practice and, and this or that. And we started having some infighting based on girlfriends. Mm. May started having um, some serious drug addiction problems. Mm. And uh, it, we just started infighting over stupid things. I mean, you know, my ego started getting out of control. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll own my part of it. You know, I, I thought I was more important than, than some of the other guys. And um, it just came to a head. And mm. then we had a big fight. And that fight, um, it was a stupid fight. But, but it was just the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and we just couldn't recover from it. But luckily our attorney was smart enough to know we had actually signed a small deal with Warner brothers at the time, Mm. uh, a four song production deal. We were supposed to go in the studio the following weekend that we broke up. Okay. And our, our attorney was smart enough. His name is Scott Harrington and he gets really lost in the Lincoln park success story without Scott Harrington. There is no Lincoln park. And a lot of people leave that out of the story. They assume it's all from Jeff Blue connecting the dots, and he was a large part of that. I give him his props and his and his. Uh, uh, he, he he's owed the 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 portion of success he attributed for sure. But without Scott Harrington being smart enough, saying I don't want Chester to fall through the cracks out in Arizona, he's too good, and plugging him into the machine that was called Zero mm. at the time in L.A. Without that happening. Lincoln park never happened. Would have happened. It was, it just wouldn't have. And he gets written out of history, which unfortunately the Warner brothers guys are really good at doing and rewriting the history of, of, of that band. And it's unfortunate. Hmm. So wait, who is this guy? Scott, what was his name? Scott Harrington. His name is Scott Harrington. He was our attorney and attorney. Uh, he, okay. He was a big attorney for, you know, I think Melissa Etheridge and Candlebox and mm. Slayer. He was, he was a really good attorney and, and he just, 
you know, we weren't super good friends or anything like that. You know, he and I actually got, got into it over some of the, some of the songwriting rights, but at the same time, I, I, I want to make sure that the truth is out there. And that guy really, without him, none of the stuff that they did would have happened. Gotcha. And that's just the truth of it. Yeah. So you guys was, break up. Yeah. You break up and you work on the tattoo shops and then, um, it was uh, your, what was a guitar player, Bobby. I think he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It's always weird stuff like that can bring people closer together. So Chester actually was the one that reached out to you when that happened and kind of realized life's too short. We shouldn't feud about this. And you guys kind of made amends. Yeah, we did. You know, I, I went on to another band called Waterface and I had a deal with EMI and, and, and uh, after grade A's. So I wasn't, I wasn't bitter for the, for the grade A's. Um, experience i was very grateful i thought we wrote some great songs and when chester chester um had spoken to my cousin jacob at the time and had found out that bobby was diagnosed with a brain tumor and i guess he called me that day after he spoke with jacob and it was just we just picked up right where we left off we both apologized for being dicks to each other and i think i was little i think i flew out to la to hang out with him that very next weekend and we just picked right back up where we left off yeah uh, we both, we both missed each other very dearly. We were best of friends and, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we repaired that friendship very quickly and, uh, went back to being best of friends and uh, eventually became business partners in club tattoo, right. uh, in 2003. And, and the great days thing came up several times. We tried to put the back, the band back together in 2002, uh, for a charity gig for Bobby. And then, uh, Warner brothers stepped all over that and, and told him no, after we had already, sold tickets and everything for that. Hmm. And then in 2016, or I'm sorry, 2007, we tried it again, but I had hurt my back. Um, and I, I couldn't play. I literally was laid up for, for about eight months. And, wow. uh, and then we came back, we revisited in 2016 when he, when he called me and we were going to put together another party for our business club tattoo. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about that. I think we should put great A's together for that. And that's really the, the spark that ignited the the whole great days reunion. So yeah. And you were, was he, uh, were you guys rewriting the old original songs or rewriting new songs? So it's kind of a convoluted story, but I'll give you the, I'll give you the, the cliff notes version. Okay. So he called me, we, we agreed to do a reunion show for the club tattoo party. Initially it was supposed to be in July, but then we moved it to September 20th, I think of 2017. Now, after we made that announcement, we started getting, a lot of calls from promoters all over the world wanting us to play Australia, Germany. They're like, we want you guys to come play. And it was for good, good money. So on another uh, conversation we had, he said, you know, if we're going to be doing these other shows, we really should have something to sell. We should have an album of some kind. And, and then I think it was me that said, well, we have this catalog of material that was, that was squashed we should go back and release this stuff properly. And we said, okay. So I think we picked, um, it was like 10, 10 or 11 songs that we were going to start working on. And we start initially working with a producer named Sylvia Massey. Uh, this is while Chester was still alive and we would go back and forth via email, uh, rewriting guitar parts and just started organizing the tracks. And then as we were going back and forth via email and on the phone, we kind of came to the conclusion. We're like, you know what? These things need to be modernized a little bit. We need some more modern mm. sounds. These sound like they're a little bit dated recordings. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's freshen them up a little bit. And that's how that idea got. And then we were supposed to start rehearsals um, on the Sunday. And I, I, I want to say it was uh, July 23rd that we were supposed to start rehearsing, but you know, he flew back to LA to do a quick TV commercial and, 
And of course he, you know, he passed away that night. So, um, we didn't get to follow through together on that, but, uh, that's how it all initially got started and kind of ramped up into what we were planning on doing together. Yeah. So, and I don't want to talk too much about his passing because you've, you've talked about that enough. And, uh, but there is one thing that I, I, I think to, it's interesting to bring up because you said there was like no red flags and, uh, you know, like you didn't really see anything. And then you just think he got into that moment and he just, he wasn't thinking rationally. I heard something that, uh, Dr. Drew said that really stuck with me that if people are having those kinds of thoughts, they need to call nine one one. Like it's an emergency. Like if you're having a suicidal thought, that's like, you're, you know, you're bleeding to death. Like you need to call 911. It's an emergency. I feel like that no, mindset no. doesn't really set in. The, the problem with what Dr. Drew is saying in my, in my humble opinion is that takes a rational mind to make that choice. Mm-hmm. And when you're not thinking rationally, you're not making rational choices to call 911. Yeah. You're not thinking about getting help. You're thinking about getting out. So I think that there's a big disconnect between that phone call and reality. I just don't think you or I, we yeah. go, I'm going to pick up the phone because I want help. That's not what people who are, are literally on the precipice of committing suicide do. They're yeah. thinking about the but pain is too hard. Right. It hurts too much. I don't want to live anymore. I want out. But isn't Paul's all they're thinking about. Part of that too is the stigma though. I feel like there's a stigma like, Ooh, you can't talk, you know, you can't call 911. Like it's embarrassing or you should be ashamed. I don't know. I feel like if more people thought the way that, okay, they should, I mean, I don't know if you're right though, but if you're so deep into it, maybe you're just not thinking rationally and there's nothing that you could do. And that's what's so sad, but. What what makes me come to this conclusion and Dr. Drew might tell me I'm full of shit. I don't know. But (laughs) what, what makes me feel like, I have a little bit of understanding of how this would happen to somebody is if, if he would have been thinking rationally, all he would have had to think about was his children. I mean, Mm -hmm. literally one split second thought about his children and he wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. I know him. I know him so well, he would have thought about his kids and he would have stopped doing what he was doing right then and there. But that's my point is he's not, he was not thinking rationally. Yeah. And, and that's the best that I can come up with as to the why. Yeah. And, Cause it's just, and, it's so frustrating hearing these stories and you're just like, you, you know, you want to find a way to prevent it, but I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but you know, I like to, I do like to talk about a little bit just to see if we can come up with something or, or shed some sort of light on that. But for this one, it just seems like, like you said, it was just so irrational that there was no, there was nobody there to help. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. All right. Well, so moving if on, I had, if I had a better answer to prevent it, I, you know, I, yeah. would, I would do it. I just, I, I don't. And I, I mean, that's the only thing I know. Cause I talked to, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Tyler Helinski. He was a college football player and, uh, same thing. He, uh, took his own life. And so I had his parents on, they found, they found this whole thing, Helinski's hope. And, and that's one of the things they said is like to talk about it is, you know, raise awareness can help a lot. I think, cause a lot of people, they had those feelings and they just feel too ashamed to tell anybody or to reach out for help. So to kind of encourage that, uh, I mean, it, it does help. Like you said, sometimes you get so deep into that, those kinds of thinking that you're just not thinking rationally. So I, I see your side of that too, uh, though. And I think the preventative maintenance side, for at least how I live my life, is I tell the people around me I love them as much as I can and I give them hugs. That's and, huge. You know, my children, I, I talk, hey, if you're ever feeling like this, I just know that I love you more than you than you know. And and I would all, I would do anything to keep you here. So don't ever feel like you can't talk to me. It's laying down a foundational understanding that your kids can, um, you know, come and talk to you. But 
you know, I don't think it works like that for everybody. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that yeah. for me, it's more about preventative maintenance. Absolutely. Than, you know, it's interesting with his, I was reading about him today that I didn't know, uh, he was, he was, you said he was like really skinny when you met him, when he was like, he was bullied in high school for being too skinny. I was like, Oh, that's like me. I was bullied for being too skinny in high school too. So, and like he had some insecurities. It's funny. Cause I talked to a girl from the bachelor yesterday. She has like almost a million followers on Instagram and, and she's like, it has insecurity about not being liked enough and not. And so it's interesting. A lot of these big stars, you think, you have so many fans and followers and sometimes there's still this like piece that feels like there's it's missing. Yeah. You know, the human psychology is, is a very deep subject. And and I think there's a bit of an illusion, especially in America about the way somebody should feel about themselves versus the way, um, you know, there's years and years and years of their life experience Mm -hmm. that go into how they were treated and how they were talked to how they were handled, how they were loved, how they were not loved that go into the, the momentary snapshot of what you think they should feel mm-hmm. about themselves, you know, and it's yeah. just not a, it's not a, that's a reasonable expectation of human behavior, but I understand where you're coming from for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it's hard, it's hard to understand why somebody would, um, feel so bad about themselves, but that also comes with a long explanation usually. Yeah, no, it's a deep thing. Yeah. We don't know what was going on in his si- inside <laughs> his mind, but but back to your story. So in 2017, you did this this book, Tattooed Millionaire, about creating and building a multi-million dollar business, uh, the club tattoo, your whole life story. So, and one big point of, emph- of emphasis in it is just learning from your failures, which I love that. Um, and tell me, tell me the story about like you opened this store in San Francisco and the people, it didn't, it didn't work. I, I'll let you tell the story. It is really interesting though, because it sounds like such a good idea in this like really heart of a metropolitan area that it would have a lot of traffic, foot traffic. And yeah, there was a lot of traffic. Um, okay. I'll give you the cliff notes version of this. <laughs> my, my wife, I and Chester decide to open up uh, a shop on pier 39. It's one of the busiest tourist destinations in San Francisco. Gets about 60,000 people a day on the pier. We spend $2 million opening up the most beautiful tattoo studio you've ever seen in your life. Uh, our back window is literally over the water. You're looking at Alcatraz and the Golden Gate Bridge. It was wow. beautiful. We did $1.8 million worth of business the first year, $1.6 million the first year, and we still ended up losing 60 or 90 grand. The cost of doing business in San Francisco was unlike anything I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, there, there was taxes for taxes. There were fees for fees. The city, I've never been, uh, I've never owned a business in a city that was so anti-business before. Um, they seem to want to try to, and I don't want to get political here, but um, as an entrepreneur, I'm very uh, astute in economics and how money grows and how you make money. And you cannot, uh, you can't make money by taxing. You can't tax your way to prosperity. It just doesn't work. Um, there's no, there's no way to do it. It's like trying yeah. to say how much money you're going to make, uh, you know, on your cash back from your credit card. So you're spending a hundred dollars to make 3%. It's yeah. You said that you, um, so they taxed one percent. They have some rule in California or San Francisco that they tax 1% of your gross. If it's over a million dollars, even though you may have lost money, you didn't make a profit. They're still taxing you because you made yeah. over a million. That's so confusing. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And and take a guess at how many shops were claiming on their taxes that they made over a million bucks. Yeah, that's probably a lot. Us. Yeah. <laughs> no, sure. it's us. Just what just us, nobody else. 
because they all understood the game. And oh. when we opened up out there, we were doing everything by the book. Okay. Yeah, we, were, we, would, we were walking around San Francisco before we opened this, thinking that these people were in the dark ages. All these people had these ancient tax uh, uh, cash registers. We're like, oh. what are they doing? And, you know, we have this really sophisticated computer okay. uh, POS system. And, and so we just thought everyone was in the dark. And, yeah. and, and we were in the dark because well, we yeah. didn't understand that everyone else was just yeah. dodging the system and by doing it right it, it's a it's a path of impossibility yeah no and i again i don't want to get political either but i did see this thing on the high, the uh housing crisis in san francisco because it's so there's so much homeless people and it's so hard i mean the rent in san francisco or to try to buy something is insane it's through the roof and so I, there was a story about this guy trying to build a i think it was apartments or condos and he said there was so much red tape and so many taxes and so many headaches. He goes, I will never build housing in San Francisco ever again. And so that, that, you know, that's one explanation why there's, it's like supply and demand. There's just not enough housing and it's the stuff that is because there's not very much, the, the prices are through the roof. And you have these bureaucrats that have no idea how business works. So they're right. making rules with no understanding of how small businesses operate. So that's, that's one of the worst things about politicians is you have politicians that have never done anything in their life, right? They, right. they were grown, they, they were, they grew up rich. They were, they were bred into this political atmosphere and just kind of went up this. So, so I have a real problem with politicians that never owned a business. Like you're creating laws yeah, that affect a good business point. and you don't understand business and it's mm -hmm. not anything personal. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a matter of experience. I would never let somebody, uh, you know, explain to me how I need to make a cake if they've never made a cake. It, mm. It's it's really life experience that it comes down to. That's my own philosophy. I know a lot of people disagree with me, but that's how I feel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, San Francisco was, was really tough lesson for us. And we failed at that. We mm -hmm. ended up closing our store after three years. And, uh, you know, we walked away. I lost $2 million and, uh, I hope to God it never happens again. You know? So what did you learn besides just never do anything in San Francisco again? Was there other lessons that you learned from that? Yeah, there's, di there's different, um, research markers that, that I now use before, before we open up a new store, oh. not just demographics, not just traffic. I mean, there's a lot of different things. We look at the local tax laws. We look at, um, the, the, the permitting side of things. We look, there's so many different things that we look at now that before we are just looking at traffic and, and opportunity cost and, and okay. now it's a different game. Yeah. Well, this is another thing that I thought you said was interesting. When you're leading a business, you explain to your employees why you're doing the task that you want them to do. So you don't have to remind them. And in fact, once they understand why they're doing something, they'll actually come to you with ideas. So give me like some examples of that. You know, somebody said something really poignant to me a few years back. And he said, you know what? You get credit for the people around you. So do you want to be credited for people who, you know, aren't that smart? Or do you want to be credited for the guy who, the guy who has the smartest team around him? He's like, you get credit for that. People, they, they, they chalk it up in their mind like a scoreboard. Like that guy hangs out with some really smart people. That guy has a really smart team. That guy has a really smart employee. Um, and that, that really stuck with me. And I started to understand probably after, you know, six, seven years of, of after we opened the, the first shop that being a leader was not the same as being a boss. And being a leader was really being more of a mentor to our staff and leaving them with life lessons. They're not going to be your employee forever. So if you can, if you can, um, help them grow intellectually, um, 
professionally. And then when they leave you, if they come back to you and, and, and appreciate the things that you gave them personally, uh, growth wise, then you did a good job. And I started noticing over time, I'd start having ex-employees come back to me and say, you were the best boss I ever had. I learned so much from you, this and that. And I started, instead of stroking my ego with it, I said, well, how can I do this in a more efficient, better way? And started creating programs with my wife and partner. Um, I had to create a, a, not only a better employee, but a, a better human being. We're just pulling people up the ladder. Hmm. And the stronger your staff is, the stronger your company is really. Hmm. Did you, is it true that you did have some employees that, that uh, didn't like you, that they, they tried to like start a rival tattoo business across the street from you. Did that really happen? Or were you just saying hypothetical? Yeah, no, no, that's happened a few times. I've really artists where I've had to go out in the parking lot and beat the fuck out of them. I mean, that's, I'm an old school guy (laughs) that way. And sorry, I cuss, I come from, you know, growing up and throwing, throwing a lot in. That's crazy. And, and now, unfortunately, it comes with a lawsuit and being in the newspaper. But <laughs> no, there was many times where I had to grab a tattoo artist by his neck and drag him in the parking lot and beat the shit out of him because he was doing something either inappropriate or stealing or or whatever. I mean, something uh, that was so egregious that it that needed they, that type they of deserved response. it. Yeah, you weren't just beating them uh, up for was, yeah. Yeah, it was even a more than a deserve because a fi- just a simple firing wouldn't have handled the problem. Um, so there, there were plenty of moments and, and, you know, for a long time, that was part of who I was. And I try not to be that guy anymore. Cause I, I, first of all, I don't, I don't enjoy punching human beings. I don't like being punched and, and I'm too old for that stuff, but mm-hmm. I'd rather flip, flip to the other side and, and, and try to make people better and, and help them grow intellectually and, and, and professionally to where they feel like they're stronger when they do leave the coop. But we've had a lot of people, um, you know, look a gift horse in the mouth and, and take us for granted and try to steal from us or undercut and, and, wow. you know, open a shop around the corner and try to compete. And it's like, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't go open their own businesses. That's sure. Not yeah. What I'm talking yeah. About. Uh, I've helped plenty of our ex-employees open their own studios around the world. Oh, that's but, cool. Uh, there's a diff- there's a difference between Hey, Sean, I'm going to open my own studio. Uh, would, would you help me? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. over here. It's done respectfully there's a difference between trying to hire your entire staff out from under uh, you and keep it a secret. And then you find out it's two blocks away and then they stole uh, all your, you know, they stole your records or try to photocopy all the release forms. That kind of stuff is completely wow. unwarranted. We've never been the bosses or owners that deserve that kind of behavior. So unreal. You know that, I think that's what I was writing about it. If, if you're referring to that, uh, that's crazy uh, that, that moment in my book. Yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't read the full book yet. I'll have to check it out. I've just heard you, I've heard you talk about it. Do you ever wonder what would happen if you didn't start a business? Like what if you just went and worked at American express or took a government job? Do you think you'd be miserable or would you have found a way to be happy doing that or? <sighs> man, well, I did work at American Express for about four hours. That's, that's a funny story, actually. <laughs> four uh, hours? Actually, I did. Yeah, I, le- I went to lunch and I came back and um, I just, this this was not for me. And I, I, I just never came back. <laughs> what was the job? What were you supposed to be doing? They put, they started me in the mailroom. I okay. Think I was 17. 17. It was one, one of my, it was my only corporate job I ever had. Hmm. Um and then, uh, you know, I waited tables and I worked at little Caesars for a while and, and stuff like that before I opened the shop. But, yeah. um, you know, I would, I would hope that I'd be on a path to happiness somewhere, but I really have a passion for being an entrepreneur and, and doing the things that I'm doing. So 
I don't even like to think yeah. about what would have happened. Yeah. Well, I just think uh, of all the people down. that are out there working in those jobs that they hate and, you know, maybe they were meant to be an entrepreneur as well. I think, I think it's, it seems like most people at least should have a side hustle or something. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I'm sure that depends on the individual. If, yeah. if you're unhappy in your job, I would strongly suggest you find a new job because life is way too short to be unhappy and your work is almost almost what you do more than anything else is yeah, your work. So for sure. that at a minimum should be something you enjoy doing. Find another career. Mm-hmm. And if you live in America, there's no excuse not to do it. I'm sorry. And I understand. I agree. There's, there's, there's a different privilege in this country that, that different opportunities that we have. But if, if, if you're in America, you really don't have an excuse as to why you shouldn't be chasing something you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of opportunities. So let's move on. Let's talk about the, the gray days, the new, is it, I thought it was an EP, but it's like 11 songs. I feel like that's an album. Is that, do you call it an EP or an album? Uh, stripped, stripped is an EP. It's only oh, the stripped is the EP. Yeah. Okay. That's what, it, but the other yeah. one's like the full, um, it's like 11 songs. Yeah. So yeah, you got some full, full album. Yeah, you've got Chester's old vocals, and um, then you get like you recruit all these people from Corn and Helmet and Bush and who who's the guy who plays guitar on uh, What's in the Eye? That guitar uh, work so is two two guitar players. There's uh, Kristen Davis, our guitar player, and then we have Chris Trainer from Bush playing on that track. Oh, okay, I really like the the solo and stuff on that. And then you have uh, Chester's son is doing the backup vocals on one of the tr- tracks as well, right? Yeah, Jamie sings on a track called Soul Song. Uh, he sings the in the chorus. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and you he said... Really, go on, sorry. He did a really good job. I think his dad would have been really proud. Really, really uh, unique thing we got to do with involving Chester's children. He never got a chance to record with his kids, and mm. that was something we were able to do for him, and that felt really good to be able to give back to Chester in that way. Yeah, and the, the lyrics on these songs are so heavy, and dark. I and mean, I heard you guys say that you're listening to them and they're just like tears. Cause I mean, it's just, he's like pouring his heart out into these songs. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that you'll get from the great A's material is, is a genuine emotional. Um, yes. In, intention. Yes. Big time. He really believed every word in those tracks and it just comes through. And when we started the project after Chester passed, when we restarted the project, I should say, um, we just isolated his vocals and it was really, it was a tearjerker. I and mean, we sat and cried a couple times, um, you know, listening, you have, obviously since he's passed, you have a different understanding of what he was going through. Mm-hmm. And then you hear the, the words, you're like, man, I uh, just hear it differently. And I understand the pain a lot different. Yeah, for sure. Like that, the shout out, I think that's the last song. And then there's that voicemail from him at the end of it. I mean, that one's really, it's really intense what he's saying in that, in that song. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, uh, great days has a theme. I mean, great days was, was talking about sadness, loneliness, pain, um, sorrow, um, you know, the lack of love, all, all those types of things. And, and there's several songs that feel like, and it's an apology from beyond. And that's one mm-hmm. of those tracks shouting out where, you know, I didn't mean to let you down. I mean, God, it's just, that's such a powerful lyric. Mm-hmm. And what's the one where if I had a second chance, I'd make amends. I mean, that's a, that's a track called Maury, Maury sky. Um, yeah. Chester and I wrote that, uh, when we were sitting on the beach in Mexico, uh, probably 93. And, uh, 
that now that's another one that just feels like an apology from beyond you know that's one of the reasons we came up with the with the, uh, the album title amends was from that song is is this album felt like a way for chester to make amends to the world mm-hmm. and maybe that wasn't our place to do that i don't know um but i felt like i was close enough friends to to know that in my heart i believe if chester would have woken up the day after he did what he did he would have called all of us and apologized and said mm-hmm. i don't know what i was thinking i'm sorry was there a, a people that didn't aren't happy with this project or Oh, I'm sure. I don't care about that. <laughs> but like his family obviously gave you the blessing because his son is on it. Oh, yeah, his okay. Fam- okay. Yeah, his family, That's all that matters. Yeah. His family stoked. There's a, there's a few Lincoln park guys out there that are complete dicks and, and they tell they think we're out making millions of dollars. Like I hate to tell you this, but I was a millionaire before this project and this project I've not made a lot of money on. And it takes a lot of my fucking time. And I'm doing this cause I love my friend and I love the music and, you know, $100,000 is not going to change my life at all. And that's mm-hmm. not me being arrogant. That's me being honest. Mm-hmm. This is a lot of fucking work. And we're not chasing money or that. I don't care if this sells a million albums. I just want the music to be great. I want it to be something Chester would have been proud of. But there's a couple of assholes out there that talk shit online. But, you know, what can I do to that? I can't fly to these countries and punch these <laughs> keyboard warriors in the mouth. I just have to go on with my life. And... and and, and as long as I make myself uh, happy and the band yeah. happy and his family happy, when Chester's mom, you know, tells me that she cried when she listens to some of these songs, that's enough for me. Yeah. I don't, I don't need, you know, some dickhead in Germany uh, who, who thinks he knows more than <laughs> Germany? I do about my friend. Why the, who's well, in I'm Germany? Just, I'm just, no, no, no. I'm just, throwing, I'm okay. just throwing out uh, hypotheticals. Uh, then yeah, no, it's a great album. I've, I've been listening to it on repeat. I just went out and uh, walked around and I was like listening to this. I'm like, man, this is really intense. You could really feel the emotion in his voice. It's, it's great. And I love how it's updated because I listened to the originals on YouTube and then I listened to the, you know, obviously the, the updated versions and I, I love what you guys did with it. Who did the production on it? Cause it's great. So we had like five producers on this oh, okay. album. Um, the, on the next album, we're going to have one because it was a little too many cooks in the kitchen. Sure, we think we sure. did a great job. Uh, there's a producer named SJ Jones that did five tracks on the album. There's a, a guy named Pete Nappy who did Sickness. There's a, a guy named Alex Aldi who did B12 with our buddies uh, uh, Head and Monkey from Corn on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Cass Dillon did Shouting Out with LP. Um I think that's all five. So, okay. So yeah, cause there is another, uh, there's another full album of material, right. That you could put, put out. Oh, we are, we're going where we've been writing for the last eight months. We just finished our last writing session about two weeks ago and it's good. I think you'd be very uh, blown away. I think it's as good, if not better than amends. Okay. Um, and we're going in in the end of March to start recording that album. Okay. Awesome. We'll look for that. Uh, do you have any other projects on the horizon? Any more, uh, you- Oh God, <laughs> do I have time for any more projects? Uh, I just, well, I, I have a book coming out, another book, another one okay. called uh, brand renegades. It's a small <laughs> business entrepreneurial book talking about branding and different, different theories and uh, marketing concepts that you can use on a micro level and in, in different communities. So uh, that's coming out through entrepreneur magazine, entrepreneur press uh, in May. I'm really excited about that. Um, you know, of course, we're always expanding Club Tattoo. My wife and I are working on two new businesses that we're opening. Uh, we'll be making an announcement for those here probably in about two or three weeks. So I'm very busy. Okay. Are the new businesses in Arizona or where are they going to be? 
uh, Las Vegas. Vegas. Okay. Are you in Vegas now or Arizona? I'm in Arizona today, but okay. we have, uh, currently we have three company, three club tattoo locations in Vegas and we'll be opening a couple more, uh, new, new companies up there this year. Okay, cool. Well, it sounds like you got a lot on your plate. Well, just keep me posted and uh, everyone should follow you on social media to keep up with what you're doing. Well, thank you. Yeah. And then also I'd like to end with a charity. Was there, I don't know if your publicist told you, is, is there some, a charity that you want to give a shout out to at the end here? Oh, a new, a new leaf foundation. So my wife and I work a lot with a company out of Arizona. It's called the new leaf foundation. Uh, they initially started helping battered women, uh, get out of abusive relationships. Um, oh. we donate, we're, we're big donors to this company. We, we have done business with, uh, them in some shape or form for the last 24 years. Wow. They are amazing. Okay. They, uh, they, they act as an intermediary to, uh, get these battered women out of these abusive uh, relationships. They give them a place to live. They give them a skill set, and they get them a job in a oh, year. I love it that. Is an amazing organization, a new leaf, new leaf. Okay. Well, I'll put that in the notes for sure. So if people can throw a few bucks that way. That'd be great. And follow you on awesome. social media. Anything else you want to promote? <laughs> No, that's it, man. That's okay. Enough. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for doing it. this. I appreciate it. I'll see you around Phoenix sometime, maybe. Anytime. Look me up. Okay. Take it easy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was Sean Dowdell. The band is called Gray Days. Check out their website. Lots of cool old pics of the band with Chester and Sean. Listen to the album Amends. It's great. It's dark, but it's really good. It's really emotional. Make sure to follow Sean on social media to keep up with all the great stuff he's doing sounds like there will be more projects more music another book and who knows what else um and while you're on there while you're on social media instagram or twitter facebook uh give me a follow and um you can share the episode if you enjoyed it and if you really have the time you can write me a review on apple podcasts that would help me out a lot so thank you so much for listening have a great rest of your day remember shoot for the moon